and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. There are times in life we see the whole picture, when the vision is our own. Most times, we're partners in someone else's vision, and we know only in part, perhaps a very small part. How much of God's vision do you really know? Teaching team member Jeff Norris continues the series Habakkuk, Hard Thoughts of God, with this message entitled Faith's Conflict which covers Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 5. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Do you ever stop and wonder how certain names in the Bible caught on as names that we name our kids and some didn't? (laughs) You You ever wonder, like, okay, so so Daniel, Jeremiah, these prophet names, they, they catch on quick and... We know a ton of those people. There's even some Zechariahs out there. There's some Ezekiels, right? I've met some Malachi's. We even on the girl side, you know, we got Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca. What what happened to Habakkuk? (laughs) That could have been a really cool name, but now it's just weird, right? If you name your your kid Habakkuk, people are like, well, that's that's just really strange. But we need to redeem that. Like, okay, so so young families... Start naming your kids Habakkuk. We got to give this man the proper due. He was a he was he was a cool dude. I digress. Um, I don't I don't love magic illusionists. I, 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 let me say this: I do love it because there's something about it that, that goes, "Wow, that's in, it's amazing how they do it." And we ooh and ah, you know, the, the David Blaines and the Chris Angels and the. Uh, you know, David Copperfield, if he's even still around doing this thing. But there's a part of me, though, that every single time I kind of like it, but I ultimately get angry. Because every time I watch an illusionist do his thing or her thing, I, I just go, okay, okay, I know you didn't just make a bus disappear out of thin air. How? There's a trick somewhere. There's something that you did that I can't see. And I want to know what it was. There's something that maybe there were mirrors or position of the camera, whatever it may be. There's, there's something that happened that was beyond my ability to see that you know about that I don't. See, we don't, we don't really do well with mystery. We do great with mystery that is solved. We don't do well with mystery that stays mystery. There's a reason why I love Scooby-Doo growing up. Because you always found out who the, who the guy was, right? The, the, these, these bumbling Idiots who are in the van running around, can't get anything right. But eventually at the end of the show, they pull the mask off and you go, okay, I feel satisfied. I I know who did it and I thought it was him the whole time. But if mystery stays mystery, the intrigue actually begins to give way to frustration. Because we want answers. And so when God comes and begins to do mysterious things among us, and and remember, God is mysterious. Caleb talked about this last week. We we see in the first part of this text that God's ways are often mysterious. And and, and that's a good thing because if we could define God, if if we could fully understand God, then he ceases to really be God. We're on the same playing field. But the finite always is intrigued by the infinite. The created is always intrigued by the creator, and he's allowed us to know him, but we always want to know more. And especially when he begins to come and do things that we say, this is not in accordance to what I would expect you to do. 
That's exactly what's happening in the book of Habakkuk. This is, this is a story, this is a picture that we get of a, of a prophet 600 plus years before Christ came who is wrestling with a God that he thought he understood but who is now acting in ways that aren't in accordance to what he expected of his God. And he's going, wait, what? And the main point that I want you to get this morning is that we can't always see what God's doing. In fact, oftentimes we, we don't see what he's ultimately up to. But we can know him, know him intimately. We don't know everything about him. We can't figure out all the intricacies of this unimaginable, magnificent God that we will mine the depths of eternity getting to know. But we can know him intimately. And here's the kicker. We can trust him. He is trustworthy. Really, it all boils down to the the very songs that we've sung today. Which, after we sing them, or maybe even in the course of singing them, it poses the question to us, do we believe what we're singing? That in you I have found my hope, in you I will place my trust, in you I will give all of my life into your hands, that you are in control of all things. That if God is sovereign, he's he's not just sovereign over some things, he's sovereign over all things, even things that seem to us to be the very essence of evil, but they're not in the sense that God is using them to do something that is far bigger than we may ever understand in this lifetime. We may not get the answers that we want. But God is faithful. He's in control. He's trustworthy. That's what the book of Habakkuk is pointing us to. So turn there if you haven't already, and don't be ashamed to use your table of contents. There's no shame if you got to go to the front to figure out where this little book is. I'm going to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 1 from where we left off last week. Verse 12 says this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. And look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. 
He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. A few things that we want to take away from this morning and from this text, and it all really comes out of this question of what do we do with a God, with our God, when he doesn't act in accordance to what we expect of him? Last week we focused in on this is what's true of God, but then now this week, what do we do when God is mysterious in his ways? And the first thing to see that we see modeled for us here in the text from Habakkuk is this. We rehearse what we know. And I would even say it this way. We rehearse what we know that we know. Whether we feel it to be true or not. Look at what Habakkuk says in verse 1. I'm sorry, in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die? Now he's posing this in the, in the form of a question, but really what he's doing as he questions is he's declaring what he knows to be true about God. He's saying, you are my God, you are my Holy One, and then he's saying, you're everlasting. Are you not the everlasting one? And the, and the implication there is this, that God is the everlasting covenant keeper. He's the one. He's eternal. He's far beyond us. He, he's, he's beyond anything that we can ultimately comprehend. But what we do know about him is that in his eternality, in his everlastingness, if you will, he's made a promise to his people that he will always be faithful to his covenant. That's what Habakkuk is a implying here in this question and that's why he says we shall not die he's not shaking his fist defiantly saying no we shall not die he's he's more perplexed at saying okay you're the everlasting one you're God you're the holy one you're faithful to your people we're not, we're not gonna die because you're faithful now here's what's happening if you weren't with us last week or if you were and if kind of we're trying to remember what was going on in the context of this here's what's happening God's people have been gravely disobedient. They've been idolatrous, worshiping all these false gods of other nations and, and other religions around them. The apostasy is thick in this, in this people group. Even more so than that, about 100 years before Habakkuk is writing this, which he's writing this probably around 640-ish B.C., in 722 B.C., the ten northern tribes of Israel, which, by the way, you may not know this history, but after King David and King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into a southern kingdom and to a northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was made up of ten tribes. A southern kingdom called Judah was made up of two tribes. So you had the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 722 B.C., because of the apostasy of Israel, of the ten northern tribes, God had warned them and warned them and warned them, if you don't repent and turn to me, judgment will come. And they didn't repent, they didn't turn to him, and so judgment came. God does what he says he's going to do. And so he brings the nation of Assyria into the northern tribes and ransacks them and ultimately destroys them and disperses them to where there is no more kingdom of Israel. There is no more northern kingdom. And so it was a judgment of these ten tribes of the north, but it was also a warning to the two tribes of the south, to Judah. To say, look, if things don't change for you, if your hearts don't turn back to me, if you don't repent of your idolatry, then this too will happen to you. And although there were moments of repentance and revival in the nation of, his, uh, of Judah, 
Ultimately, their lives were permeated by disobedience and idolatry. And so in the first chapter of what we read, the first few verses of chapter 1 of Habakkuk from last week, Habakkuk's crying out to God and he's saying, God, how long will this evil persist within Judah? How long am I going to have to look at what's happening with the people of God? And how long, here was the key question, how long are you going to be silent? And God gives an answer that Habakkuk pretty much says, I would have been much more comfortable with your silence. Because he gives an answer that's way worse than his silence. He says, okay, you want to know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the Chaldeans, who really aren't a major power in the world at this time, but they would become very soon, and they would become known as the Babylonians. I'm going to raise up these Babylonians and bring them in and do the very same thing that I did to the northern tribes to you, and I'm going to take you into captivity into Babylon. And it's not going to be good. So, Verse 12 is Habakkuk's response to that. God has just answered me in a way that I just found masterfully confusing. I don't understand what he's doing, but here's what I will do. I will rehearse what I know. And that is, even though I'm confused, I'm, I, just, I know who you are, God. Now listen, there's a big difference between knowing about God, knowing facts about him, knowing things about him, and knowing God. Notice the personal nature, the possessive nature of what Habakkuk says. He says, O Lord, not the God, my God, my Holy One, not the Holy One, my Holy One. When things hit the fan in life, knowing things about God are not going to be very helpful. But having set in long hours of intimacy with God and knowing him personally through his son Jesus is going to be deeply helpful. J.I. Packer said it this way in his book, Knowing God. He said, a little knowledge of God, notice the word of there, it's a critical word, a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. We need, frankly, to face ourselves at this point. We are perhaps orthodox evangelicals. We can state the gospel clearly. We can smell unsound doctrine a mile away. If asked how one may know God, we can at once produce the right formula. That we come to know God through Jesus Christ, the Lord, in virtue of his cross and mediation. On the basis of his word of promise. By the power of the Holy Spirit via a personal exercise of faith. Yet, the gaiety, goodness, and unfetteredness of spirit which are the marks of those who have known God, are rare among us. Here's what Packer's saying. He's saying, and this is especially true in the American South, is that our churches can be full of people who know about God but have never known Him. Do you know Him? Do you know nice platitudes about Him or do you know God? You've tasted and you've seen and you've felt and you've sensed the goodness of God, you are absolutely convinced that he is God, that he is holy, and that he is good. This is where Habakkuk starts in his reply, in his second complaint. But then 
He doesn't stay there. He's honest. Second thing we see Habakkuk doing in this text is that we need to do is that after we rehearse what we know, then we wrestle with God honestly. God wants us to come honestly to him, to not be pretentious or pretending, to, to come to him and say, God, this is where I'm at. I mean, you know me, you've searched me and you know me, you know me more than I do. You know what I'm feeling even more than I do, but I just want to be honest. I'm struggling and I don't get you and I don't understand you. After Habakkuk says in the second part of verse 12, he says, O Lord, you have ordained them, them being the Babylonians, as judgment. Now don't miss that. I don't have time to preach on that, but that's huge. The word ordained is huge. Habakkuk gets it. He gets that God has ordained this. He's not just allowed it. He's ordained it in his sovereignty. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. But look at verse 13. From 13 to 17, he goes into this this wrestling with God. I won't read it again, but he basically says, look, you're going to bring these wicked people in on us. And this is what's going to happen. They're going to boast. They're going to be arrogant. They're going to snatch us up like fish in the sea who have no master. They're going to carry us away victoriously in their fishing nets. And then they're going to, and then they're going to worship the nets as though that's their God. Which, by the way, this was common in that day. There have been murals and there have been wall paintings that have been found and from ancient times that, from the Middle East that show different kings and kingdoms and, and reigns in that period where the victors are walking away represented by carrying their, the ones they've defeated in fishing nets. And then in verse 17 he says this, Is he, the he is Babylon, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? In other words, is this going to go on forever, God? Will there be judgment for them like you're bringing judgment on us? Will there be retaliation? What's going to happen? Are you just going to let the Babylonians take over the world? What's going to happen, God? Habakkuk is wrestling. He's rehearsed what, he's, what he knows to be true. He's, he's reminded and preached to himself truth. This is who my God is, but God, I just got to be honest. I, I, I'm struggling here. I've shared this before, but it's been a while, and I think it, even if you've heard this before, maybe I think in this context it's worth sharing again. But when I have felt this most in my life was when there were two occasions. One I won't speak to, I'll just mention. In 2003, I went through a, a deep bout with depression that just wouldn't lift. And I felt like God was just nowhere to be found, and, and I felt abandoned and and that was a difficult time, but, but the one I want to tell you about, he did bring me out of eventually, but the one that was even probably more poignant to what we're talking about today, where I wrestled with God, was when we were, we were in the midst of infertility. We'd been trying to get pregnant for several years, and, and we, like Kirk said in the video, it, we were at a point when this felt like, uh, I felt like I was in the where the wall, splitting of the Red Sea and the, and the walls of water, and we're just in the middle of it. And I'm looking and thinking, at what point is this all going to come crashing down? And I've been trying and, and hoping and praying, and I just, it was at a point where I thought, I can't, and certainly my wife can't, much more than me, but I can't go another month waiting with anticipation that we'll get a positive pregnancy test only to be devastated yet again. I just can't do it anymore, God. And it's in the midst of this that I happen to turn on the evening news, which was not normal for me. I don't, I don't typically watch the, uh, the news. 
And the lead story this particular night was of a, uh, of a baby, an infant, a newborn baby that had been left in a, in a garbage can. I was angry, not so much at the lady, but at God. But then it, it really got even more intense when two nights later, I happened to be watching the news again. Again, this was rare for me, but I think now this was totally ordained by God. And I, I see the lead story that night, and it's of a, a woman who has thrown her, four, uh, her two-year-old off a fourth-story balcony in an attempt to kill this child. And I said, I'm done. I don't get you, God. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you would give these wackos babies. And here I am, and this is where I thought a lot of myself, here I am longing to raise children in the admonition of the Lord, to teach them about Jesus, to to raise them in the gospel, and you're going to give these people babies and not Rachel and me? Are you serious, God? You're cruel. I was wrestling with the God that I had always understood to be for me. And in this moment, I didn't feel that he was for me. And he's inviting me in that moment to say, I am inviting you to wrestle with the God of the universe that you may see things about me that you wouldn't see otherwise. Kirk has told me many times as we've sat together, he said, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't wish cancer upon anybody. I hate cancer. I hate what I'm going through. But he says, and I believe him, he's, he's, it's not contrived. He says, but I wouldn't change it for anything. He said, I've, I've learned things about my God, the sweetness of my God, the tenderness of my God, the faithfulness of my God, that had I not been led into this place of wrestling with him, I would have never experienced. So we wrestle with God honestly. But then look what happens. God responds to Habakkuk yet again. Habakkuk says at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now this is language that is very, very consistent with the prophets of the Old Testament, that they would go up on a high mountain or a high tower and wait for the Lord as the messenger to his people. Verse 2, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. That doesn't mean that when, when you write down what I've told you that people would run from it. It's, it's that the, in the Hebrew it's, it's saying that it, even if you're running by swiftly, that what, what I've told you to write down Habakkuk is going to be so clear that even if you see it in passing, you're going to get it. It's going to make sense. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Let me just say real quick on that verse before I hit the the key point. I've said it once. I'll say it again. God does not lie. If he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Now, here's why that is such good news for us. He said that he was going to bring the judgment upon the northern tribes. He did it. He said he was going to bring judgment on the southern tribes. He did it. Now, that's judgment that we don't want to hear about but let me tell you why this is good news Jesus also said and I will return God said I will send one who will rescue you from your sins one that will come out of Bethlehem one that will come from a virgin one that will be raised in Nazareth who will come out of Egypt all of those things happened 
just as God said that they would. So that when Jesus says, I will come back and when I do, I will make all things new and all sad things will come untrue. Then we don't go, can we believe that? We say, we know that we can believe that because look at his track record. He will do what he says he's going to do. And so ultimately the hope that we have in Jesus is, yeah, we can experience healing on this side of heaven, but there will be a day when all things will be made new. And our hope is ultimately in that. But look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous Righteous shall live by his faith. Those words right there, when it's quoted in the New Testament, it's quoted in Romans, it's quoted in Galatians, it's quoted in Hebrews. These few words, the righteous shall live by faith, are the very essence of what Martin Luther grabbed onto when when the Reformation was sparked, where he began to realize that this isn't about what we do. This isn't about even fully understanding how God operates It's about what he does that is trustworthy, that invokes us to faith, to trust him. Listen to what he says in the first part of verse 4. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. He's talking about the Babylonians again, but really he's talking about all mankind. That our nature is to be puffed up within us, to be arrogant within us, to think that we can satisfy our own souls. That we can experience the success that we so long for. That we can experience the joy that we, that we hope for. But that ultimately, no matter what we pursue, no matter what we chase after, it's going to end in destruction because we are not righteous. We're sinful. And we will always make a mess of our lives left unto ourselves. But God. God is righteous. And he sent his son, the righteous one, to do for us what we can't do. So that our faith wouldn't be in ourselves and our inability to get anything right, but our faith would be in him who gets everything right. That the righteous live by faith, not because we in and of ourselves are righteous, but that it's the very faith in the one who is righteous that makes us righteous. It's his righteousness attributed to us as if it were our own. And so Habakkuk is getting this and he doesn't even probably fully understand it at this point. God's saying, Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, and you won't get this fully and completely. You won't understand this, and you'll die not fully understanding what what I'm saying here. Because I'm weaving a story together that is so much bigger than you. What you don't know is that I'm actually going to bring Babylon onto you, and I'm going to leave a remnant, and out of this remnant is going to be the one who's going to rescue you, but not rescue you in the way that you think you need to be rescued. Because when Babylon comes... From that moment forward, from 586 until the time of Jesus, Israel, the the people of God, the remnant that's left after Babylon comes in and after they come back, after Babylon's defeated, they're not under the control of their own power and reign. First they're under the control of the Babylonians, then it's the Persians, then it's the Romans. So that by the time that Jesus comes, the people of God are awaiting a salvation from them. Save me from these oppressors. And Jesus is going to show up on the scene and he's going to say what you need more than anything out there is you need rescuing from your own unrighteousness. And I am the righteous one. Place your faith in me and through faith in Christ we too are made righteous.
This is the essence of the gospel, the essence of Christianity. See, we want answers, just like Habakkuk wants answers. But I'm reminded of this. Jesus didn't say, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you the answers. He said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. What we long for even more than the answers is rest. I was in a fraternity in college, and for all the grief that fraternities get, and and rightfully so, I actually ended up being thankful that I was in one, but it didn't always didn't always start that way. In fact, my freshman year, when you're going through pledgeship, I questioned a lot. Why am I here? And in our fraternity, and, and uh, we did a lot of dumb stuff. That's what fraternities do a lot of times. One of the dumbest things that was a part of our fraternity is that when you're a pledge, you couldn't look anyone that's initiated it's a brother in the house who's gone through pledgeship and been initiated. You can't look him in the eye. It was deeply encouraging. You had to walk around like this, head down, anytime you were in the house, staring at the floor. Somebody calls your name. Hey, Norris, you instinctively look up. Look down, don't look at me. Oh, yeah, okay, I can't, I can't look at you. The more I walked around like this, the more I'm staring at the floor all day, every day, the more I'm going, what, why am I here? What? Why did I do this? Why am I not leaving? Why am I still here? Once I got initiated, though, and I began to have the ability at that point to look people in the eye and build relationships and focus on them and their face, the more the the question of why am I here began to dissipate. And the more I began to be thankful, although I never felt completely at home in a fraternity, as God was changing me in my heart, I I felt more actually uncomfortable there. But I began to be thankful to be there because of the relationships that I had. I don't know if you're getting with where I'm going, but what I'm ultimately saying is this. It's so easy for us to walk around like pledges. With our eyes fixed on the circumstances of our lives, staring at the floorboard, if you will, of our lives and looking at everything that's not right and going, why, why, why is it this way? Why am I here? What's going on? And the call of the gospel upon our lives is that God tenderly and faithfully and graciously lifts the chin of our head over and over again. And he says, just look at me. Just look tenderly into my face and see the love that I have for you. And if you ever doubt the love that I have for you circumstantially, look at the cross and see my love poured out for you there and keep looking at me. And when I look down at my circumstances, just keep looking at me because remember, it's easy to draw conclusions about God based on our circumstances. But what the gospel reverts in us is that we begin to draw conclusions about our circumstances because we're fixed on God. Caleb said it last week. We'll say it every week because it's so good to remember that faith is not judging God on our circumstances. Faith is judging our circumstances through the lens of the cross.
Where will you look? Where will our gaze be fixed? When we stay here, we end in frustration and turmoil, and we live in the why. When we're fixed here, and oh, Jesus is the one that my eyes are fixed on, the author and the perfecter of my faith. When I'm here, the whys aren't answered, but there's life and there's contentment that only he can give in the midst of the mystery. And it's good. Father, we thank you that you are who you are. We pray, oh God, that we would be a people through your Holy Spirit within us to be able to look upon the face of God and be satisfied. That as much as our souls want to cry out, why? May we even more deeply cry out for you, to know you intimately. We can't always see what you're doing, but we can always know you and trust you. You are trustworthy. You are faithful. You are my God. You are my Holy One. And you, I will place my faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing together? You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.